thinking of Heathcliff. Who else? He's sunk so low. He seems to take pleasure in being mean and brutal. And yet, he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. Linton's is as different as frost from fire. My one thought in living is Heathcliff. Ellen, I am Heathcliff. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Samantha Ellis, joined this week by one of our fabulous patrons, Jacob Haller. For this episode, we're talking about the 1939 film Weathering Heights. This week, we decided to have a fun little twist and make one of our hosts the guest. Our fearless leader, Kristen Lopez, has written a fantastic book. But have you read the book, 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Movies, coming out on March 7th? which you can pre-order wherever you get books. Before we talk to Kristen and Jacob about Weathering Heights, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including double features, looking at remakes, and based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We have so many fun things coming out in 2023, and our new Redbubble store has some fabulous art, all designed by me. Featuring your favorite stars over at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklish biz. Now back to the show. First, Kristen, I have to start out by asking you, how did this book come to be? We would all love to hear about how you came into contact with TCM and how you settled on this concept specifically. I can't really take too much credit for this one because... In a great Hollywood story, it's all about who you know. And in this case, I had a coworker who had written a book for TCM. Shout out to Christian Blavelt, who has written two books now for TCM. He recently wrote one about Hollywood and World War II for them. I had asked him just casually, how does one get published by TCM? He had put me in touch with the person that is in charge of that, the fabulous John Malahai. And we just started talking. He said, what are you interested in? I gave him a couple of things that I was into, none of which were this book, by the way, but he wanted to get a feel for the types of stuff that I like. Eventually, they reached out to me and said, well, we have a bunch of ideas that have already been approved. We just are looking for a writer to write them. They said, well, you have a master's in English. You like to read a lot, right? And I was like, well, do I? Up until this point, this master's degree had not necessarily paid off for me in any significant way, shape or form. Yes, in this case, I did read a lot. And I also, oddly enough, tend to read books that are going to be adapted into film early. I like being the insider that knows what's going to happen with a movie. So I was already reading books like this. And they said, well, do you want to write a book about adaptations? But I said, yes. It did not mean they just handed me this project and said, well, here you go. I still had to sell myself as the writer. I still wrote a pitch document. And one of the sample chapters I wrote was about Withering Heights because it's my favorite book and one of my favorite adaptations. So it was a really good blend of timing and an idea that they already had and something I was already interested in. I have to commend you. When I flipped through it, I really didn't expect to get such a wide history of film. I didn't know what you were going to limit it to, but it really covers everything. 
I can imagine it would be so hard to narrow down exactly what adaptations you're going to put in the book, right? Because I would argue you've got your best adapted screenplay Oscar every year. That category fills every year. A lot of books are adapted into movies. What was the process like of narrowing down? There's a lot of sample lists that I had, long lists. The first thing I got told was just write everything. Write down every movie that you know of that has an adaptation. I did. I sent them maybe close to 80, 80 to 90 books. Most of them were not great adaptations or things that I was ever going to write about. Give us some examples. I have to know. A lot of it was more modern stuff like Twilight, stuff like Harry Potter, things that I tended to like. So a lot of Dennis Lehane books, Don Winslow Savages, which is one of the few adaptations that I wish I could have included just because I have a lot of opinions about that. A lot of romances. It was a really lengthy list. I'm trying to actually go back to my drive that had all of my lists on it just to see what that original list was because I haven't even looked at what it contained since I pitched the book. I remember it being a very, very lengthy, lengthy list that was incredibly easy to narrow down once I started doing it. TCM was very, very forthcoming about the stuff that they wanted to include. The time that this was being developed, Dune was in the process of coming out. So they knew they wanted to include that, which I was fine with. They also wanted to make sure that I had a diversity of authors. I had a diversity of genres, eras. So a lot of it was just really fine tuning the things that I knew I wanted to include. That's the thing. When I flip through, that's really what I get is diverse. Jacob, we have to bounce you in here too. When it comes to Wuthering Heights specifically, which is really early in the book, where is your background on it? Can you remember when you first saw it? It's funny. I was sent a list of topics and movies that we could talk about. I picked this one, but I had actually never read Wuthering Heights or seen any adaptations of it or even really heard the Kate Bush song. So this week has been a busy week of research. I read the book and I watched the movie a couple times, and some media surrounding it. It's been interesting. I wasn't really sure what to expect. You all are the experts. I am curious to hear what you think about the differences between the books and the movie and what you thought about it in general. Kristen, let's bounce back to you. I really would like to know mm-hmm. your history with it as well. I read Withering Heights for the first time freshman year of high school, freshman to sophomore year of high school. I was very determined to read everything on one of the reading lists that we had because I'm a perfectionist. This was one of them. And I checked it out at the library and I took it to my journalism class that I was in. And the professor who was probably about my age at this point, so he was the cool young teacher that we had, looked at it and said, I would never read this book. I would actually jump off the roof of my house. It's so terrible. Now that I look back on this, I don't really know if he should have been telling this to a student. At the same time, I was like, well, screw you, dude, because I'm a rebel because it was high school. I was going to read this book. And I did read this book. It was amazing. I loved every second of it because the Bronte style of writing feels very grandiose. With something like Withering Heights, it is such a messy tragic story about people who just refuse to compromise and it's about class and it's about 
identity, regret, anger, and hostility. It's about all of these feelings that as a teenager, you're like, I understand all these things. To read it, it's just so impassioned and it's so amazing. And up until maybe about a decade ago, I would read it every year. I have not done it in a while and I feel very bad about it. So when I realized that they had made several movies about the book, I've seen pretty much all of the major ones. What is interesting is that the book and the movie, at least the 1939 version, the book only comprises about half of the novel. It does not include the back half, which includes a whole second generation that comes up in the wake of Catherine and Heathcliff's relationship. And a lot of that is understandable. The characters all have very similar names. There is a Catherine and a Kathy. There's a Hindley and a Harriton and an Edgar and a Linton, but not Edgar Linton, which is the last name of the character. So it's easy to see why they condensed it significantly. I still love everything that Emily Bronte did with the book. And I think it's withstood the test of time, which is why there are so many versions of it. New, old, associated with the book. There's an MTV version that was fairly limited to just keeping the names of characters, but they modernized everything. They turned Heathcliff into like a rock star. It's entertaining in its own way. And I've seen them all and I find merit in all of them. I had no idea about this MTV adaptation. Oh my goodness. I really like that. I like Heathcliff as a rock star. Totally see that. It came out right around the MTV era in the early 2000s when they were trying to rebrand right after Harmon, a hip hopera. I'm not really sure. Don't quote me on that. It was around the same time as that. And I just remember that it had Katherine Heigl, Eric Christensen's in there. So it's a very, very early 2000s take on Wuthering Heights that is remarkably similar to the 1939 version in that it comprises the first half and it does adhere to a lot of the same beats, but it's modern. It's a happy ending which is ridiculous in the grand scheme of things, but still entertaining in its own way if you ever watch it. That's just so wild for me to hear. I know that there are multiple adaptations. I have not read the book and I have not seen any other adaptations other than the 1939 version. That being said, I have seen the 1939 version many times. I really wanted to see it at the TCM Film Festival when Alex Trebek was introducing it. I skipped it for Butch Cassidy. I've seen it so many times because really from the start of my dive into classic film, I've always loved Vivian Lee. I love her relationship with Laurence Olivier. And I feel like this movie plays so much into the history of their relationship. And just seeing him at that time looking broody and hunky. And I love Merle Oberon, especially the more I watch because I've been watching more and more of her films. Seeing both of them in this, I'm just obsessed with the movie. I'm, I'm over here in the corner obsessed with the movie. I don't know anything else. That's all I know. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to tell you then that Merle Oberon and Laurence Olivier actually despised each other. See, I heard about that and it's really interesting to me. It was one of those cases where they just had those kinds of personalities. They're too similar. To be fair, Laurence Olivier really did not like making this movie. He found... William Wyler, who is the director, to be an incredibly demanding director. He hated the multiple takes that he made him do. He also didn't really want the part because he wanted Vivian Lee 
to play Kathy and the studio executives didn't want that. They offered Leah consolation part. They offered her the part of Isabella and she didn't want that. She wanted the lead. Supposedly, Olivier was very upset that they just didn't give it to her. The studio decision was right because Vivian Lee is fantastic, but part of the role of Kathy is that she is this young girl that is trained to believe that she is only as good as the money and the status that she has. And so once she becomes a teenager into adulthood, she realizes that she does want finer things in life and that unfortunately that comes with having to marry wealthy. Heathcliff is just not into that. He despises that mostly because as the child of Romani people, which this movie considers him, the book also considers him the pejorative word gypsy. There's some illusions that maybe the character is supposed to be mixed race, which I know Andrea Arnold did in the 2015 version of the movie. She cast a black actor to play Heathcliff. But the point is, is that Heathcliff is not considered one of the gentry. He is an orphan. He is poor. He is possibly dark skinned. He doesn't fit in. And so a lot of that bears in his decision making. Vivian Lee, she's great at playing spoiled. She's great at playing this being from another level of humanity that doesn't understand the way things are. But Merle Oberon understands that this is a character that is slowly going to be hardened or at least has to put on a brave face in order to live her life. The movie punishes her for that, but I see that more than I would if it had been Vivian Lee. The thing that stands out to me so much about Merle's performance, she's just so smart. She understands the wit of the character and she understands that the character has these huge aspirations but you can also see that internal conflict within her it's definitely a difficult choice to make and when it comes to such complicated emotional relationships like this that are shown on film i never watch the same movie twice and this is one of those when i was watching this this time around it's hard to pick a side right because there's good and bad in each side of the situation This time around, I just felt bad for both of them. There's just so much emotional abuse going on on both sides. (laughs) It's not fun for anyone. These two people make the whole town sad. (laughs) They just all want these two to stop. It's to the benefit of only doing the first 16 chapters of the book as well. Because the way that Laurence Olivier plays the character... He's certainly tough and mean, but he's not despicable, which as you read the book, Heathcliff's hatred of the wealthy and his resentment does end up destroying who he is as a person and does make him into a monster. There's a whole backstory that involves him raising essentially Kathy's brother's child, the next generation of Heathcliff. And treating him horribly, but manipulating. And the character is really hard to root for by the end of the story. Some of the actors that have played the character in other incarnations do play him as just completely, completely mean. The greatest example that I have and the performance that I'm most conflicted that I love is Tom Hardy in the British version that they did about a decade or so ago, which is also worth a watch if you are looking for something really good. He 
plays the character very, very difficult to sit with. Olivier works really well here. He also would play Mr. Darcy a couple years later. So he was great at playing the roguish characters you hate to love and you love to hate in these types of movies. But it benefits him that the story does not continue. And he has this come to Jesus moment at the end and he's eventually reunited with Catherine and death. Spoiler alert, the book is old enough. You should know there's spoilers coming. Book Heathcliff is far crueler. He runs away with Isabella. And when she talks about it, she's like, the first day I knew that this was a mistake. Physical abuse, there's emotional abuse. It's real bad. He's not a good character in that book. That was something I thought about because the movie is much more romantic and takes Heathcliff's side, which the book is somewhat sympathetic to him because he is mistreated so much. He just internalizes all the abuse he takes and just becomes like a lot of the characters refer to him as literally Satan. And there's been interpretations, numerous interpretations of the novel about whether Emily Bronte was writing the character as a marginalized person. There's a lot of theory about the character being the bastard child that the father brings back and says, oh, I found this orphan. But maybe it could very well be this illegitimate child that he's had out of wedlock, which would be common considering the Brontes, Charlotte Bronte did Jane Eyre, which also culminates with a woman of color in some ways being horrifically mistreated. You understand his resentment and his cruelty. The movie does a really good job of making the character go just far enough into being a horrible character because you have someone like Laurence Olivier who can deliver these lines, but he can't live without his soul, how much he loves her and how she can't go into the darkness where he can't follow. These are characters that we talked in the last episode about messy couples, couples that couldn't give each other up. Catherine and Heathcliff are the ultimate couple that cannot just give each other up to the point where when Catherine dies, she pretty much wastes away from classic movie slash classic book disease, which is I just take to my bed and I die and I have no discernible means of why. Heathcliff's whole thing is, well, there's really no point in living, even though they treat each other horribly. The fact that they are both alive and in each other's world is enough. Once she's gone, he literally has no reason for being questionable on whether that's romantic or not. But the Greg Tolan cinematography, the beautiful score, damn, it makes it look good. A lot of what puts it together is Laurence Olivier, truly, because he just had it down pat by this point, playing the roguish, brooding, complicated literary man. He just had it down to a science. I love seeing him on all full cylinders. One thing that really took me back when I was watching it this time was a lot of the dialogue sounds exactly like his off-screen letters to Vivian Lee. Is he maybe playing these roles on purpose? Is it supposed to be a little reflection of how he is? It's also worth noting that this came out, it's the same year as Gone with the Wind. So you have these two big dueling adaptations of probably the most beloved novels of their time period. Ironically, before anybody asked me, Gone with the Wind is not in the book because I gave myself a rule that I needed to have time to write and I was not going to read anything that was over X amount of pages. Gone with the Wind was far too long for me. So it's not included. 
to watch something like Gone with the Wind, which has this very epic sweeping over centuries, maybe not centuries, over decades, watching Scarlett O'Hara become this person. It's really interesting to look at how Wuthering Heights, which also tells a story over several decades and multiple generations, actually omits all of that and decides to tell this very straightforward love story. I mean, I'm going to do the hot take. I think it does more with the source material than Gone with the Wind does. Wow. That's I know. a high praise. It's great that Vivian Lee not being cast as Kathy in Wuthering Heights led to her being available to do Gone with the Wind. We have Wuthering Heights Samuel Goldwyn not liking Vivian Lee to thank for that. It's also worth noting how much the production of this was incredibly difficult because nobody liked each other when they were making this film. Not only did Laurence Olivier not like Merle Oberon, nor did he like William Wyler, David Niven talked openly in his biography about how he didn't really have any chemistry with Merle Oberon how he couldn't cry on cue to watch the movie and considering that Edgar Linton is supposed to be the decent guy, but he's supposed to be sickly, just not nearly as cool as Heathcliff is. Having someone like David Niven in the role, I don't know, it's always tough for me because I like David Niven. I'm always like, well, it's a nice guy. He treats her right. I'm not really seeing the issues here. Other versions of Wuthering Heights tend to go a bit more nebbish. The Tom Hardy one uses a pre-Walking Dead Andrew Lincoln, who is just so pasty. I find him incredibly boring in it, which is part of why the character, he's supposed to be boring. He's supposed to offer nothing other than a nice life for Catherine. There's supposed to be no love there. It's the one thing about this movie I do not buy, because I'm like, David, it's got charisma. I like David Niven too, and he is criminally underutilized in this. I actually believe that this was the very first David Niven film I ever saw. It really didn't put me onto him at first. It took me a while to come around to David Niven because I saw him in movies like this that really didn't use him to his full potential. To all listeners who have seen David Niven in this and haven't seen A Matter of Life and Death, you need to go watch that. And see how amazing and heartily second that that movie is just perfect. In the book, he's he's very boring. In the movie, the worst things about him are is he's clearly just thinks Heathcliff is nothing, and there are a lot of racist and classist attitudes in there. Kathy, in the book, certainly once her father died, she was basically let to do whatever she wanted, and so she, she came up pretty wild herself. Apart from this mutual fascination, she has a fellow feeling with Heathcliff. That attitude doesn't sit well with her. She wants a comfortable life. It's one of the big changes from book to screen in the sense that the movie ends with this beautiful sweeping shot of Peniston Crag, which is where Heathcliff and Catherine go to as children. It's their private place where they can be who they want to be. You see the spirits of them walking together hand in hand. That's not in the book. A lot of people take issue with it because it's really the opposite of what Bronte wants you to understand about these characters. Yes, there is a romance to it, but Bronte is really looking at at what point is the romance perverted. It becomes this 
relationship of control and abuse and hate for the sake of it. What point does Heathcliff stop being a romantic leading man and become this monster whose hate ends up consuming him? It's why I love the movie, but I do stipulate always that it is not the book because a contemporary reader of the book is going to look at that and be like, oh, so Catherine's just cool being haunted by Heathcliff. What's the point of her haunting him? It's more pettiness than anything else. I definitely appreciate the romantic ending in the movie, but it is a completely at odds with what Bronte wrote. The other thing that I noticed is in both the movie and the book, the main narrator is Ellen or Nellie, the nurse. In the movie, she's as enthralled in their love story as anyone. And in the book, she doesn't like either one of them. Talks about how annoying they are a lot of the time. It's more of a woman recounting the story that she doesn't see as being of any value. There was numerous ways in the early days of Hollywood to enter into an adaptation of a book. And the easiest way to do that was to have a narrator. You had somebody not necessarily narrating, but telling the story to somebody else. Great example, Citizen Kane, in terms of trying to go back to the beginning and interview all these different people. And that's a very easy way to tell a story. Mildred Pierce does that, right? Where she's sitting in the police station recounting how this goes. So it's almost like reminding the reader, this is just like an audiobook. You're being told the story. And 1939 was the very popular time for adaptations because not only did you have this and Gone with the Wind, but another one that I ironically put on my long list and did not include in the book for reasons I don't really remember is The Wizard of Oz. It's worth pointing out how much of a fundamental element of old Hollywood books were to the point that, and they still do this now, but studios would go and make the book deal for the movie before the book was even published or the book was even written, and they adapted everything. If it had a bare modicum of popularity, they would adapt it, which is why you get weird stuff like, it's my go-to, why did they adapt this? The Razor's Edge. That book was a little popular, so they adapted it. Not everything was Vera Kaspari or Dashiell Hammett. They would take anything, because the belief was is that if it was popular with readers, that's a built-in audience. It's amazing to look at how adaptations have changed over the years, because now I think studios are a bit more selective about what they adapt than they were in the 30s, 40s, into the 50s. To add to that conversation, I don't want to sound like an old crabby boomer here. People don't read as much anymore. (laughs) And I think that it's a lot rarer for a book to come to the surface of public popularity where everyone's talking about it. And then people pay attention to it enough to adapt it into a movie. I just feel like that doesn't happen very often anymore. Like what you're hearing? Then consider supporting Ticklish Business via Patreon. We host two additional bonus shows and special series like Six Weeks with the Thin Man, give out free merch, allow you to guess on an episode, and more. You can check it out at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And if you want to take Ticklish Biz home with you, consider buying something from our Redbubble shop. You can find our holiday Jean and Judy Makoko mugs or get our newest design devoted to Jean Kelly's ahem, assets in an American in Paris on a variety of objects. It's at redbubble.com slash people slash ticklish biz. Now back to the show. I don't really hear people talking about books in your basic conversation, unfortunately. 
some of the biggest book adaptations these days are what? They're skewed to young adult YA. And even then, the YA boom has petered out a little bit post Hunger Games and Harry Potter. That was really the biggest audience you were going to find in contemporary times with a book adaptation. You also have to remember that in the early days of film, the 30s, 40s, the studio system, it was a lot quicker turnaround for book adaptation. So you could make a movie in two, three months and have it out by the end of the year. Now, movies take so long to develop and to get the director on board and to get an actor's schedule cleared that numerous times now you'll be like, that book was popular five years ago. Why are we now adapting it? It takes too long. The benefit of looking at classic film adaptations is that you're really getting more of an eye into what was popular at that time because it was quicker to make the film. To return to something you said earlier about how movies would rely on narrators to give a framing device. And I feel like there is an equivalent in a lot of novels of this era of, for a while there, it seemed like authors wanted to give the reason why this book existed as a thing that you could read. Like Frankenstein, it's like, well, you end with the monster up in the North Pole and the doctor, who knows? How do we know about this? How is this a book? There's this framing device of, oh, and I met this guy and I wrote it down and now this is a book. That goes on in this book where Lockwood, the lodger who is in the movie, shows up at the beginning and he's had a tough time in the city. He needs a break. He's broken a woman's heart. So he goes out of the country. He's completely insufferable in a way that I found very enjoyable. I liked the performance in the movie by Miles Mander. thought he was good. Doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but I just thought it was interesting that there's this parallel between this 1930s trope and a similar trope in novels of this era. I love that the adaptations of this era never shied away from the fact this is a book. We're making it because it's based on a book. And so you had stuff like that. It's great to look at some of the trailers from this time where they would actually have the book in the trailer and they would open it up and it would show these scenes from the movie that you're going to see. They make no bones about the fact that this is a book you loved, people. You can go out and buy it and you can read it. You can see the movie. And now we just had an adaptation come out within the last week that people are criticizing because it doesn't want to promote the fact that it is an adaptation. I love the old studio system concept of we know this is built in IP for us. We know that this is printing money, right? Not only are people going to buy this book, but they're definitely going to go see it because they bought this book and they love it. And I always love the poster designs from that era too, because when it's an adaptation, the book will take up half the cover. It'll incorporate the spine and make the two lovers the cover. Because I think of about the This Above All poster with Jerome Power and Joan Fontaine. There's the whole book and they're popping out of the book. Another thing too that I haven't mentioned is I always hear about so many of the studio heads were just huge readers and loved a lot of the classic literary novels. And it was really them just saying, hey, I want to make David Copperfield. And they just did it just because there hadn't been a movie of it. Goldwyn and Selznick were the two that most are commonly associated. with. Yeah, they're the two that came to my mind as well. Yeah. You also had authors that were built in to adaptations. You had your Brontes. Daphne de Maurier is a very good example who had pretty much all of her movies adapted 
Ira Levin, who did Rosemary's Baby, is a more contemporary example. Almost all of his books have been adapted except one. You had authors that were pretty much just glorified gold mines for a studio. Now, that didn't mean that you had authors that were writing Hollywood films. That didn't always work out. F. Scott Fitzgerald is a great example of an author that came to Hollywood and tried to write scripts and just could not make it work. Neither could Dashiell Hammett. They just could not crack the code how to write a script. So that door didn't always swing both ways. It is really interesting that so many prominent authors were so involved in Hollywood, though. A lot of them did write the adaptations. And when they didn't write the adaptations, they were at least around. We don't have the movie anymore, but you talk about Fitzgerald. The perfect example to me is that he literally wrote a silent film adaptation of The Great Gatsby, which is unfortunately now lost. It's so rare. You never see that anymore, that author interaction and involvement with a Hollywood film. A good example that I know of is Dashiell Hammett worked on The Thin Man, which is a very different movie than the book. The book is far more pre-code involving drug use and murder and infidelity. And, and Hammett was not happy with it, so much so that by the time the second movie rolled around, he had just said, peace, he was out. And he had tried to write a second book, a second Thin Man, he couldn't do that, and he didn't like the movie, so he just blitzed out of the, the sequels. And a lot of times, authors just did not like the adaptations that would result from their films. Hemingway, the great example, something like To Have and Have Not, which is an adaptation of his book, which is probably the worst Hemingway book ever. It's a terrible racist book that I almost didn't want to include in my book, but it was the last one I had to do, so I was like, I'm going to work through this. That was the goal for Howard Hawks is him and Hemingway made a bet that he could make a good movie out of Hemingway's worst book. And he did. It's a Casablanca ripoff. But he made a good movie out of Hemingway's worst book. Hemingway eventually got closer to what he wanted when they made The Breaking Point in 1950. Even that's still an improvement because the book is just grotesquely racist. You mentioned The Thin Man. I just wanted to plug that on your Patreon you just covered all the Thin Man movies. I listened to those episodes. They were very fun. I've seen a couple of the Thin Man movies. Maybe I'll watch more. Although I gather not the third one. So the, I just wanted to put a little party plug in. is terrible. <laughs> it's amazing to look at why certain decisions get made with adaptations and certain ones don't. Wuthering Heights doesn't necessarily have the sauciness that would require a severe need to change up and condense. It's not Mildred Pierce which is incredibly sexual in the book and very different, which you can actually watch the Kate Winslet miniseries version of Mildred Pierce and get something that's closer to the novel. Postman Always Rings Twice is another example. It's amazing to find out what would get changed for censored reasons. Like I said, it's really just having the right actors to pull it off. So many ducks lined up here. You've got Greg Toland on cinematography. Of course, that's what won the single Oscar that this movie won. I just cannot rave enough about Laurence Olivier and Merlot Braun. I will say, too, for the people that love this movie and are looking for another movie with them, I always recommend The Divorce of Lady X. I don't know if either of you have seen that one, but that movie, it's a great 30s Technicolor, and it's a cute little romantic comedy with the both of them. They just bounce off of each other so well. 
it's definitely more lighthearted than this, but this just shows that they have the range to carry both types of genres. And they were made pretty much right back to back. You would never believe that they didn't get along. I really can't get over that. What I love is the irony of this movie being a romantic story about people that can't be together. And both actors were dealing with the fact that they couldn't be together with their respective partners, Olivier and Vivian Lee. And this was right in the early days of Merle Oberon's relationship with Alexander Horta. It was really a relationship riddled drama behind the scenes. It's definitely the gold standard for old Hollywood romances. I included a couple others in the book. Rebecca's in there, the 1940 Hitchcock version. And that is a very romantical, swoony movie. But it's not in the same vein as something like this. Even something like it was on the shortlist. I wanted to include it. And I had too many movies from the era. And they said to cut it. But I also had The Heiress, which is based on Washington Square. And even something like that, which is a very romantic and swoony story that does have the tragic ending that this movie does not have. I don't know, it just lacks that aura of romance and magic to it that this movie has. I think it's because it's a perfect storm of all of the things that are needed to make a romance. A strong cast, beautifully passioned leading actors, the Greg Tolan cinematography, which it was set in Britain, but it's actually filmed in Southern California. That is not England at all that they are working with. The yeah, Heather the, was real, though, at least. The Heather was real, yes. The score is beautiful. Weiler is a director that I think really did understand the grandiosity of romance in such a perfect way. My favorite scene is the dance, when they're all at the dance. Just the way that everything fits together, the music. A lot of it is unspoken. It's just actors looking at each other or trying to sit next to each other, but then someone else comes along and they can't. Looking at each other across a crowded room. Other people noticing that they're looking. It's just so great. It's so well shot. It's just a beautiful, beautiful part of the movie. It's really a beautiful movie beginning to end. I would say if I had to pick a favorite part, I love the scene in which Merle Oberon is getting ready for, I believe, her first date with Linton. And she's getting ready and she talks about how brilliant she is. <laughs> That's so great. Not only for Merle Oberon to be able to deliver that kind of dialogue just in the first place. I do sympathize a lot with her because I would even argue it's a trope that we see where you have a woman and she's beautiful and young and she has guys flocking after her and she's torn between the poor guy she loves and the rich guy she maybe doesn't love as much. Well, it's definitely something that I feel like I've seen time and time again. But it's so well done here. She really has a tough decision because you see moments throughout. I almost switch sides sometimes, especially because David Niven's in the part and I like him too. It's difficult. With Bronte too, and again, you really do have to separate the novel from the film because Heathcliff is such a manipulator and the movie does want you to see that these two end up together. Jane Eyre has the exact same problem, which would come out the year after this with Joan Fontaine and Orson Welles. I know that Mr. Rochester blind at the end of the book and he suffered some problems, but he is a horrible character. He is a horrible character who has a secret wife in his attic that he treats like crap. He treats poor Jane Eyre like garbage. 
But a lot of the Bronte texts were showing the ways that Victorian literature at the time was really telling women that they should be, which the books are railing against. Men want these quiet mouses that are caregivers and the angel of the house that can care for your children and find the goodness in you. But at what cost? And I think that Jane Eyre ends with a more positive spin on that. But Emily Bronte just says in the book, no, actually, this is horrible. And it's only in the next generation with the children of Catherine and Edgar and Hindley that maybe something passing for a more equitable type of relationship can be achieved. She's pretty much saying the time for these two to have a romance is done. It's on the next group to try again. The Goldwyn Company didn't want that. They wanted a positive, happy ending where in death they can mend all their wrongs and find each other. Goldwyn added the ending with their two ghosts walking off into the distance, right? Over William Wyler's objections. Wyler pretty much said he directed it, but it wasn't really his movie at the end of the day because Goldwyn did have final say over what couldn't couldn't be included. I just feel like they took the ending of Smiling Through and slapped it onto this without including the whole part of the second generation. (laughs) They're like, everyone's good now. Don't worry. They cause so much destruction in all these people's lives, but don't worry about them. They're fine. As long as Kathy and Heathcliff are good. There's a whole big thing in the books, too, the running theme of how Women and children are just really the property of the men. Maybe women, if they're lucky, get to choose which man they belong to, but they better choose right, because if they don't, you end up as Isabella, and you're really not a happy person at the end of that. All these things where Ellen or the doctor or somebody will be like, oh, wow, it really seems like he's going to kill her. Gee, that's too bad. Oh, well, what are you going to (laughs) do? Nothing I could do about it. They did the movie again in 1992 with Ray Fiennes and Juliette Binoche, which did do the rest of the book pretty hilariously, if I do say so myself, because they have Juliette Binoche when she's Kathy has brown hair. Juliette Binoche, when she's the other Kathy, has blonde hair. And they let the same actors play the two roles. It's pretty funny. That just um, makes me think of Elvis and Kissing Cousins. <laughs> they just exactly. called it a day. That's pretty much all it is. This is, I think, two or three years before Ray Fines would do The English Patient. And I know a lot of people have a soft spot for the 92 version because that's the first version of Wuthering Heights. I don't really care for it, even though they are doing more of the book. That one, ironically, also ends with the same ending as the 1939 version, and they did have to use Samuel Goldwyn Studios in the title because they did own the rights to Withering Heights. It's definitely, definitely a mixed bag to look at other versions of Withering Heights. Some of them just tried to do a bit too much. I can't say that I have seen or like any other version. I'm getting more into the literary adaptations now, though. I just saw Jane Eyre for the first time this past year. I'm starting to get into that genre. You know what Dragonwick, as we were talking about, I love this version. This is the version that I'm going to hold close to my heart. 
I'm biased. I love both Merle and Laurence Olivier and really everyone involved. William Wyler is just such a great director. And a lot of people don't put him in the Mount Rushmore of directors, but I think there's a very solid argument for him to be there. Oh, definitely. Wyler is one of consistently great directors, whether it's this or the Children's Hour, Dodsworth. He's just consistently made fantastic movies about relationships. He really found the intrigue in just having two people navigate the pratfalls of romance. He also had a lot of good threesomes in the sense of Heathcliff, Cappy, and Edgar, or something like The Children's Hour. In the original film, These Three, which he also directed. So he really liked looking at what do you do when you introduce a third person? into a relationship. What type of powder keg do you unleash? And he did a lot of different things with that. This is a very straightforward story of classism and romance, whereas something like The Children's Hour adds in an element of lesbianism and and how does the introduction of another woman change how people see you? He was a fantastic director, even something like Funny Girl, which is a very modern contemporary musical that could have been dominated by Barbra Streisand. And it is... But it's hard to not say that William Wyler isn't a huge factor in why that movie works. Right. And I think about the best years of our lives, too. So many mental and emotional dynamics in that movie. There are just so many good examples. We could be here all day. We could be here as long as the best years of our lives is talking about William Wyler's work. I did want to bring up, you mentioned to me about the shortlist and what I had. And I found my original list that I included, which again, did not include Gone with the Wind. I forgot to include the biggest. I can't believe I'm so surprised. I know, I know. But I included a lot of other things that they unfortunately did not allow me to include that I wish I had stuff like for the purposes of the time period that we're looking at. I had Scarface, the 1932 version on here, Magnificent Ambersons, Mary Poppins, a Little Princess, which I tried very hard to include because I love that. There's multiple versions of A Little Princess, much like this. A lot of things just itching for a volume two. Well, we definitely hope there is a volume two. Yeah, that'd be great. I can't recommend this one enough. We've got 52 in there. We could get 52 more, I'm sure. I say that now, and then if I ever get the opportunity to have to read 52 books again, I will be saying, why did I say I wanted to do another one? You'll be like Colleen Moore, where she's got one eye on two different books. (laughs) That's pretty much how I wrote it. Prepping one book and reading another. It was so much juggling. I was telling people it was a lot like prepping for my master's exam, which required me to read a lot of books in a very short amount of time. So thank God that degree taught me how to prioritize reading and speed reading and all of that. Do you guys have any final thoughts on Weathering Heights? Would you say that you recommend this version? And do you think it stacks up to the book? It's not the book, but I do love it. It is a great gateway into classic romance. And it's a really good example of how you can adapt something and why you would make the choices that you would make. This only is 16 chapters of the book, but they use those 16 chapters in such a skillful way to make a really compelling romance. It totally changes the intent of the original novel, but that's why you read the novel. That's why you enjoy it, because you want to see the differences and why film makes the choices that it makes versus an author. 
having read the book for the first time and then immediately watching the movie for the first time, they are very different experiences. I recommend both. I thought the movie was very romantic. It's everything we've just said. Love that. I would also give the film version my seal of approval. There are so many adaptations that I've read. I've read My Men Godfrey. I've read Anatomy of a Murder. I can't say how this one stacks up. I defer to my colleagues, but the movie is absolutely worth the watch. You got to be here for Broody Lawrence Olivier. You got to be here for first Asian woman to ever win an Oscar Merlo Oberon. <laughs> Lawrence Olivier, in the early parts of the movie where he's just dressed in rags, dirty rags, I don't know what you're supposed to think this, but the characters seem to think like, oh, this pitiable creature that no one could ever love. And you're looking at him and it's like Lawrence Olivier and you're like, this guy is a Greek god. Anyway. It definitely gave me Wesley from Princess Bride vibes. This is the early version. Princess Bride, I think, eliminates some of that moodiness and some of that toxicity. A lot some of the are- toxicity, yes. A lot of the toxicity. Toxicity or not, this is worthwhile. It's so fun to have conversations about it with other people who are watching it too, because you can just sit next to somebody and they have a totally different experience with what's going on based on what they've been through in their relationships. This is unrelated to the movie, but for Kristen, I was just curious, were there instances where you liked the book and then you thought the movie wasn't good or vice versa? Oh, gosh, there are several instances. One of the books that I included in the long list that I did not include, because at the end of the day, I want people to read the books as much as watch the movie. So I didn't necessarily want to include stuff where I didn't like the book because what's the point of reading the book then? American Psycho is the example that I tend to use where I prefer the film versus the book because I feel like the director and the screenwriter of the film understand the tone of the book and made something that is just so funny and so scary that I don't necessarily believe the author intended when he wrote the book. One that I feel is equal to its source material is Jurassic Park. You can read that book and have just as fun of a time reading it as you do watching the film. They're very different. There's more characters in the book. The order that characters die, some characters die that do not die in the movie. It's got such a cinematic feel to it. It's easy to see why Spielberg picked it for adaptation. And it's easy to see why Michael Crichton is another author that tends to be adapted because his books already have a very cinematic element to them. It comes to me watching a lot of the adaptations. Usually I approach it from, I almost always watch the movie first, and then I read the book to get a deeper understanding of what I just saw on the screen. When those two things are opposite, it just makes my brain explode. The best examples that I have are The Postman Always Rings Twice and My Man Godfrey the person that I built up in my head and who is depicted on screen are just totally different. I haven't read Postman the book, which I know Eddie Muller says is far more gritty and sexual than the 1940s version that I love with John Garfield and Lana Turner. So maybe I'll get to that. I'll get to that at some point. The thing that really throws me off is I just feel like the dynamic is totally flipped. Instead of a dark, broody man and the blonde woman, you've got a blonde, broody man and a dark, broody woman. If I were to cast 
what I had in my head for the book, I would probably have William Holden and Yvonne DiCarlo. It's so crazy to think about because that's definitely not what you see in the movie. Yeah. Somebody asked me in an interview if I had ever watched a movie that I thought was based on a book and found out that it was not. And speaking of Bill Holden, I always tend to think that Sunset Boulevard is an adaptation and it is not. Right. Billy Wilder, he's my favorite director and he just is such a fantastic writer and has such a way of transporting you into a different world. You really understand his characters and what they're going through because it's so relatable. You would never think that these aren't adaptations, that he just pulls these from his head, especially not even being American, really telling some of the most American stories like The Apartment. It doesn't get more modern than that to me. It's timeless. You could make that movie today and not change a thing. That closes out our Ticklish Business episode for today. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews matter, so leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars should do. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Ticklish underscore biz as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at TicklishBiz. You can follow me at Classic Film Geek on Twitter, and you can find my posts at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. Kristen, where can fans find and get in touch with you? I'm on all social media platforms. You can find my writing over at therap.com. I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film, and I'm on Instagram at kristenlopez88. And Jacob, where can fans get in touch with you? I'm a musician, and you can find my music on Spotify and Apple Music. Just search for my name, Jacob Haller, H-A-L-L-E-R. I also do some music streams and also play some video games on Twitch. Look for J-W-G-H-A-L-L-E-R. And once a year, you can find me on this very podcast, thanks to Patreon, which I recommend you all join and take full advantage of. Speaking of our Patreon, our Patreon helps keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ and gives us chances to do all of our new content, like the Thin Man series that we mentioned earlier and all of the amazing things we have planned for 2023. So consider helping us out at patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. Don't forget Kristen's book, but have you read the book is out March 7th, but you can pre-order it wherever you buy books. And we will return with a new episode in two weeks. See you then.